we thank and praise you that you are here in this place, that your Holy Spirit dwells everywhere we go, but that we have set apart this time and place not only to come before you and to worship, but to be changed as we open up your word that it might draw us closer to you and to becoming more like you when we leave than when we came. And so we pray all these things as we open up your word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's the the second Sunday in a new series that we're calling Here to There. We're actually coinciding this with a bunch of other churches that are doing the same thing. And the concept is is simple, that, that our faith is not so much about a destination that we arrive at. If you're here for the first time and you're looking for a church full of people that have arrived in their faith, you walked into the wrong church. We're the church that's still going. We're the church that's still trying to figure it out. And what we're learning is that that's the truth for all of us. That when it comes to our faith journey, it's about God through his grace and his presence carrying us from wherever it is you find yourself today to wherever he's calling us to be. And so last week we started the series by talking about how we can move from just getting by. Life has just become so difficult, especially in this season that we're living in, to dreaming the big dreams that God has for you and for me. And today we're going to talk about moving from hurting to hope. And if you're in a place of hurt or pain, um, I really hope that God's word speaks to you this morning as we get into it. And so um, if you would, open up your Bibles, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. And instead of reading it at the beginning, I want you to have it in front of you so that we can walk through it slowly together as we go through the message. Um, We're going to start at about verse 18. I think it is 16. um, Is uh, Yeah, I think 16, 18. We'll figure it out as we go. Um, But open it up, and if you don't have a Bible with you, take the one out in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that home. We would love for that to be a gift for you um, to be able to bring back with you in worship, but to have God's word wherever you go. So please open up to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be walking through a story about a man you've probably heard of before, the Apostle Paul and his brother in Christ Silas. And they find themselves in the presence of God in what might look to us on the surface like an unlikely place. And I say that because so often when you ask people where do they find themselves closest to God, they often answer, not even in church, right? But what, what do we often say? Nature, right? Like being out in the presence of God. How many people feel God's presence when you're outside? Show of hands. Now, um, I hope you weren't outside yesterday. There was a tornado warning. Um, But last Saturday, did anybody spend time outside last Saturday? Remember last Saturday? That was like one of those April days that reminds you that summer does come to Wisconsin eventually, right? It was sunny out. It was warm, all this stuff. And so um, it was after I was done with with my work, Alyssa and the kids and I, we decided to take a little uh, adventure just about 20 minutes north-ish of here in the Kettle Moraine area to a place called Paradise Springs. Has any, anybody here, show of hands, anybody here ever heard of this? I, I'm so glad some of you have, and I'm glad that a lot of you haven't, because I've lived here a long time. I had never heard of this place until last weekend. Really, really cool. Only about 20 minutes from here. It is the ruins of an old resort that was only open for about 10 years. It closed in 1948, but people still come and travel from near and far to come and see it um, because it is at the site of this beautiful spring-fed 
pond. And I'm looking at you, Hannah Babiak, who's sitting in front, because I was Googling for pictures, and I found your pictures. Hannah's taken some beautiful photos, and she's sitting right here. So you can buy them. They're online. But it's, it's just an incredibly beautiful place. I guess back prior to 2015, there was this dam, and the, the, the pond was even bigger. But even now, um, just crystal clear water. There were all sorts of different people there. When we were there, there was this um, a couple of people taking prom pictures. There was a couple that was on a romantic date. It was actually so romantic. I had to answer some questions to my kids. It was awkward. It's, it's not my... It's, I don't know why I said that. That's not my sermon. Anyway... <laughs> Forget that because that's going to draw us away from the point today as it did then too. But like it's, it's romantic. It's a beautiful place and I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hopefully that couple will be gone by the time you get there. And even though the, this, this resort has been closed now for decades and decades, people come near and far um, because of the water. Because the water is still there. Because the water, this spring-fed pond, is this beautiful, tranquil place that draws us into God's beautiful creation. And so when I think about people saying, I feel closest to God in nature, it's easy for me to think that way when I think about last Saturday at Paradise Springs. And that leads us into our reading today of the book of Acts. If you don't know what the book of Acts is, it, it comes right after the Gospels, which is the part of the Bible that tells the story of Jesus. It's actually a continuation of one of the Gospel writers, Luke, as he continues to tell the story past Easter, past the ascension of Jesus. And at this point where we're going to get into in chapter 16, we are at the very beginnings of the history of the first generation church. And Paul and Silas and some others, they're traveling into a place called Philippi, which is a Roman colony. Um, it's in modern-day Greece. You may know it by the letter that Paul later writes to the Christians there, Philippians. It's also found in our Bibles. But at this point in Acts, we're kind of at the ground level. We're seeing the way in which this church begins to be formed by God through the missionary efforts of Paul and Silas. And so just before our reading, um, you'll see that the population of Philippi, it, it didn't have a lot of Jewish people. And so they they didn't have enough Jews to form a synagogue, and instead they would go to pray on the Sabbath and at other times to a place called the place of prayer. And the place of prayer was often what they would refer to a synagogue or a church as. Um, but in this case, because they didn't have enough people to form a synagogue, they would meet at the edge of the river. And if they ever were to build a synagogue, oftentimes synagogues were built at the edges of rivers because, first of all, it would allow you to do the ceremonial cleansing, but it also told anybody who's Jewish, if you were maybe traveling through and you wanted to go and pray or you wanted to worship, follow the river and you'll find the place of prayer. And so there, there isn't a synagogue, but there is a place of prayer along the river in the midst of nature. And Paul and others, they travel to that place. And this isn't part of our reading, but it's part of the context. They, they come, if you look in, in front of you at your Bible, you'll see, they come and they meet this woman named Lydia. And so they've gone to the place of prayer. They've gone to pray, and they baptize Lydia, and they baptize her whole household, and she invites them to come over to her house. And you see that they, she kind of has to persuade them. And, and it kind of looks to me like a little bit of an interruption, right? 
It's beautiful hospitality teaches us how we should be hospitable as well. But I'm not so sure Paul and Silas and the others were planning on going to somebody's house. I think they were planning on going there to pray. And it makes me think about a question. What do I do when I go someplace to pray and I get interrupted? Now, I've got five kids, and so oftentimes that can happen if I try to pray at home. But if it isn't the kids, maybe my phone goes off. And if it isn't my phone, it's just my own wandering thoughts taking me to places that I didn't intend to go while I'm trying to pray. Anybody here have that experience? Okay, good, good. Not alone. So what do you do when you're interrupted in that beautiful moment that you've come to to pray? Well, that's what Paul and Silas do. And some time passes, and right before our reading here, we see that they find themselves again on their way to the place of prayer, and again, they end up getting interrupted. So take a look with me, Acts 16, beginning at verse 16. Once, while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which, <clears throat> excuse me, she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit as I was reading this because it's almost like Paul gets so annoyed with this woman that finally he just kind of snaps a little bit. And maybe the reason I'm, I'm chuckling is because it reminded me of the only time that I remember ever punching somebody in the face. It was fourth grade, not saying it's right, okay? You got some kids in the room. Pastor said it's okay to punch people in the face. It's not, okay? But I remember there's one time, and, and it was out on the playground. I was in fourth grade, and this kid was taunting me. Every single day we'd go out for recess, this kid would taunt me. He'd follow me, come right up to my ear and whisper. It's like bullying, right? And, and I remember eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And so fourth grade Tom turned around, and I popped him in the face, <laughs> And I broke his glasses, and he started to cry, and then I started to cry, <laughs> and we went to the teacher, we were both crying, we were friends again within a week. So, like, not that big of a deal, but I'm watching Paul here, and, and, and it says that he became so annoyed at this woman who just won't stop taunting him. It's not her, it's the evil spirit that he turns around, doesn't pop her in the nose, doesn't break her glasses, but he comes, he turns around, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, leave the woman, this evil spirit, and the evil spirit leaves her. And I wish that I could end a sermon about pain and hurt right here, right now. And I wish I could just stop preaching today, right this second, and say to all of you here, anybody who's got pain, anybody who's suffering, anybody who's going through anything, right now, you come forward, and I'm going to pray the same prayer over you that Paul prayed over this woman, and you're going to be healed, and I'm going to be healed. It's going to be like Oprah. Everybody gets a healing, and we're all going to leave. I wish that that's the way this story went. My, my son, um, my seven-month-old son, Grayson, uh, he, was, he, he had a tummy ache last night. And, um, and I said at the first service, you have to forgive me if I fall asleep at the pulpit. Ted, you'll have to come finish reading my sermon because it may very well happen. And, and I tried to pray that prayer over him overnight, but it didn't work. In the name of Jesus Christ, go to sleep. No, I didn't. 
I didn't, I didn't. And you know why I didn't? Now, I've seen that prayer work. I've seen it. The power of prayer. God can do it. And sometimes he does. But those of us that have walked with God for any length of time, and those of us that have walked with God through suffering, you probably know that usually it isn't that simple. And what we'll see here is that it wasn't that simple for this young woman. Just because the spirit is removed from her does not mean the rest of her problems fade away. And actually, the problems that came from her pain begin to extend to the people around her, namely Paul and Silas. Now, remember this woman that he turns around and says, In the name of Jesus, I command you come out of her. She was a slave. And her slave owners were using her to tell fortunes, and they were charging people to tell fortunes, a fortune teller, just like today. And now she doesn't have the ability to do it because it was that spirit inside of her, which means that now her life is at risk, and now their income is at risk, and they're angry. And because they're angry, now Paul and Silas' lives are going to be at risk as well. Take a look at verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, again, remember, they're in Philippi. There's not a lot of Jewish people. They're not even enough to establish a synagogue. And I can almost hear Paul at this point as he's being accused in the public square. I can almost hear him saying, we were just trying to go to the river to pray. We were just trying to go to Paradise Springs. We are just trying to have a quiet Sabbath. I wasn't asking for any trouble. I, I healed the woman. I didn't punch her like Tom would. Like, like you hear, you can almost hear Paul saying that now. Verse 22, the crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now just just take this in. The reason we're reading it slowly is because every detail is important. Just, Just peel back the injustices in this story. Right, Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And they're going to the place of prayer. And they baptize a family, Lydia, right? They go to her house. They accept her hospitality. And then the next time they go, they rescue this slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. And now, because of all the good that they've done, they've been beaten and they've been thrown into prison. And it was all just on their way to pray. We were just trying to pray. And it leads me to ask another question. When do you give up, right? Like at what point do you stop in the midst of the pain and the injustice and the hurt? At what point do you say enough is enough? I'm not going to pray anymore. Is it the first interruption? Is it the second one? Is it when you're arrested? Is it once you're beaten? Is it when you're shackled to the floor? At what point do you just say, God, I'm done, And I ask that question because for Paul and Silas, they do the opposite of what you might think. They're just actually getting started. Look at this, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas, 
have been interrupted. They've been unjustly arrested. They've been beaten. They've been in prison. And they're singing hymns to God in prison while the other prisoners are listening. Why? Is it because they're crazy? No. It's because the first thing that we learn here is that hurt is attracted to hope. Hurt is attracted to hope. It's hope that Paul and Silas were singing about. And I instinctively did the same thing last night as I'm rocking my seven-month-old. He's he's such an even-tempered little guy. He's never, never unhappy. He's always smiling, which told me he just, his poor little tummy must have been in so much pain. And so, no, I did not try to perform an exorcism on him. You know what I did? I sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. Over and over again. And I kid you not, it was the only thing that could get him to quiet down. Paul and Silas were not singing crazy songs. They weren't whistling in prison. They were not singing Mr. Rogers, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. That would have been crazy. They were in prison. It's midnight. They can't sleep. But instead of allowing these interruptions to stop them from praying... But to stop them from having faith, instead, they see the interruption as an opportunity to have more hope, to pray, to sing, because it's in that moment that they need hope. They need hope because they're hurting. And and, and it makes me think about our answer to the question, where do I feel closest to God? So many of us feel closest to God in nature, right? And we say that, and we say that because we're thinking, yeah, I feel closest to God when it's sunny out. And it's about 78 degrees, right? Spring is good. Things are green, right? But maybe before all the mosquitoes came out, like you have an idea of what that looks like. And yet, isn't it in the middle of the storms that we need the hope of God? I may have experienced the hope of God at Paradise Springs last Saturday on a warm, sunny April day. But yesterday, this Saturday, there was a tornado warning. And we were in our basement. And it's in the midst of storms that we need God. And if we wait for the ideal moment to come and say, well, I'll pray when it gets sunny again, we might never actually get there. But if we see the hurt and the pains and the storms as invitations to pray and sing, we will find that those moments, not only will they draw us into the comfort of a God who himself came to suffer, but they will have another effect, and that is that they will attract other people that are hurting to the hope that you have as well because hurt is attracted to hope and it's hope that we need when we're hurting and the hope that derives from our faith has the power to draw other people into that hope as well take a look at the next verse verse 26 suddenly there was a violent earthquake so they're singing right it's midnight they're shackled they've been beaten they're licking their wounds and suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once the prison doors flew open and everyone in the prison's chains came loose the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open he threw his drew his sword and he was about to kill himself why because if you're in charge of the prison and everybody gets released they're going to kill you and so he's ready to kill himself first but Paul shouts to him and says do not harm yourself we're all here and so look at this story right it began with going to the place of prayer and you've got Lydia And then you've got this possessed girl who's possessed by a demon, and now you've got them in prison. 
And at the beginning, they were just trying to go to the place of prayer. They're just trying to pray, and yet it's in the interruptions and the frustrations, and arguably it is in the most painful moment of the whole story here where they are in prison that God ends up showing his presence in the most mighty of ways. And isn't it when you're in prison and you're hurting and when you need hope that you need God to show himself to you in the mightiest of ways as well? Isn't that when we need him the most? And isn't that what prayer is? Prayer is acknowledging the presence of God. It's being aware of the presence of God that's with us always. And it doesn't just happen when we arrive at some beautiful Paradise Springs place. It happens along the way of life. And we're missing out if we're waiting to arrive to get there. Hebrews 11.1, 1, and I, I quote this verse all the time because I hope you memorize it. So say it with me out loud. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Paul and Silas needed faith in prison that God would rescue them because they didn't know how they were going to be rescued. Lydia needed faith in a God that she did not know, but she knew about and she wanted to know more of. The slave girl needed hope that came from God. And in each of these instances, not only do we learn that, that our hurts are attracted to hope, but we learn that when we put our faith in God in the midst of our hurt, it threatens the status quo. And that's what we need. Because if your status quo is being hurt all the time, if you're constantly experiencing pain, you want to shake that up. You want to know that there's a God who tells you this is not the end. It's not over. There is hope to get through this. God is going to carry you through. But that same faith can also be threatening to the people around us. You look at the slave girl, right? right? She, she, it ends up threatening her owners because their hope and trust was in money. And they lost this great opportunity. And it reminds me that that putting faith in God in the midst of our pain can actually feel threatening to ourselves as well because what ends up happening is you start by letting go of whatever it is you've been holding on to instead to try to mask the pain, to try to ignore the pain. Maybe, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's shopping, whatever it might be. Maybe it's pizza, that's my thing, right? But whatever it might be, when you start to let go of that and stop self-medicating and instead you grab hold of faith, it upsets the status quo and it threatens our lives as well. I, I learned this lesson on Monday. I was taking down some um, metal fencing in my yard and, and I just wanted to get it done. It was not as nice as the Saturday before that outside. And I pulled this metal fencing out and it swung back at me and there was this one really sharp pointy edge. And I'm not sure it's healed now, just in case you're freaking out, but... Um, <laughs> It stabbed me in the thumb, and it stabbed me in the thumb in such a way that like, I had to literally go pop to pull it out. But I, I'm stubborn, <laughs> and so I didn't stop working. I was like, i got to get this thing done. And so I'm get, trying to get this thing done, and now it's bleeding, and it's pouring, and all this stuff. And I had to go into the house, and I had to pour hydrogen peroxide on it right into this open wound. And it stung. It hurt. But I had to do it. I had to do it in order to be able to bandage it up and go about the rest of my day. I could not keep going anymore if I didn't come in and take care of the wound. Friends, when we're in pain, the thing about pain that's unlike anything else we experience 
is pain is indiscriminate. Pain takes our attention away from everything. If you're in chronic pain, you feel it always, all the time. Physical pain, mental pain. If you're depressed, if you deal with anxiety, you feel that everywhere you go. It seizes our attention. And the way to get through it is not to try to pretend like it isn't there. The way that we get through it is through faith. Faith is the antiseptic. Faith is the thing that helps us through it, because it reminds us that we have a Savior himself who suffered as well. And Paul explains it specifically this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, God is glorious, and we should glory in his glory. But not only so, we should also, verse 3, glory in our sufferings. What does that mean? Well, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, has been poured out, just like the hydrogen peroxide into our broken, hurting hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, real faith doesn't minimize our suffering. Faith reminds us that we have hope that goes beyond our suffering. And that hope isn't just for those of you here who are suffering today. It is for you. And I want you to hear that message of hope. But it isn't just for you. It's also for other people. Because the last thing we learn is that others watch the way that we suffer. Others watch the way that we suffer. And and let me just... I said it like that because I know the response that most of us get. When I wrote it, I had the same response myself. You think, okay, I'm a Christian, right? If If you're a Christian or you're thinking about being a Christian... You might think to yourself, okay, if I'm a Christian and I'm suffering, then my witness to the world is that I got to keep my stuff together. I got to keep it all together. I can't let it out. I can't let anybody else see that I have questions, that I have doubts, that I have an emotional response to the way in which that I'm suffering. And yet you have to ask yourself, looking at this here, it's right in front of you. Is that what Paul and Silas are doing? No, Not at all. You see that earlier they were annoyed. You're going to see later they're going to be really upset at the injustice of it. We don't have time to get into that part of the story. You see that in all of this, they live in the pain. They own the pain. They express the pain. If they were acting like everything was normal and it was wonderful to get beaten and shackled in prison, then everybody around them would have thought that they were delusional. And the truth is that if you're a Christian and you act that way when you're in pain, the people around you might think that you're delusional too. If you walk out of the doctor and say, oh yeah, I was just diagnosed with cancer, but you know, Jesus saves. It's wonderful. It's not wonderful. Now I hope, I hope that you have peace that goes beyond understanding that you can experience, right? But I sit with people all, all the time. Just last week I sat with someone in hospice who was dying. She had peace. She's been following Jesus for decades. Such a close relationship with him. And the painful process of going from life on this side of eternity to the other side, it also hurts. And so we cried. And we remembered that Jesus too in the garden, he said, if there's some other way, take this from me. But not my will be done, yours. Friends, others are watching the way we suffer, and others need to see that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay to let it out, especially if you find yourself sleepless at midnight in the prison cell of guilt 
or worry or grief or pain or regrets or longing. People are not attracted. Let me tell you this. People are not attracted to Christians who never suffer. People are attracted to Christians who suffer just like them and have a hope in a God that goes beyond their suffering. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. And that's exactly what happens next. Look at this, verse 29. The jailer, remember the one that was about to to, to kill himself, right? The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He came to faith, and the guard was spared And his entire household was baptized. And it's not because Paul and Silas minimized their suffering, but it's because they praised God in the middle of it. And so to close, what I want to leave you with is this. If you're suffering today, the first thing we learn is acknowledge it. Acknowledge the pain. You're in a church of people who say it's okay not to be okay. Sometimes we're not okay. I was up all night with a seven-month-old. There's parts of me right now that are not okay. It's okay not to be okay. Acknowledge the pain because hurt is attracted to hope. That's why we're here, to sing a song of hope because what you'll find is that in those moments, in those places of pain and suffering, when you turn to the hope of God, they become your place of prayer. You don't need to go to Paradise Springs. Where you are right now becomes your temple, your synagogue, your church. And the greatest miracle of faith is that these men came to God and they came to God to pray over and over again and their most wonderful, miraculous encounter in the presence of God was not found at the edge of a river, but it was found in their moment of pain and in their greatest need. And so my prayer is that the same would be true for you as well. And I want to pray for that right now. And so as we ask this beautiful family with a little girl that's going to be invited into this hope through the waters of baptism. As you guys prepare to come up, I want to invite all of you to just close your eyes for a minute as our musicians come forward and and as we pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come before you. And we come before you in a church, in a beautiful place that's been built for prayer is people who come from varying places of interruptions and hurt and pain. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would take that pain away. God, for each and every one of us who are in pain, would you take it away, be it pain from cancer, pain from depression. God, the pain that our world is experiencing, pain in the war in Ukraine, would you take it away, take it away like you took away the evil spirit, that you took away the the imprisonment by throwing open the doors. We know you can and we come before you and we ask that you will. And we know that you will because you conquered sin and death itself. And so we come before you asking you to do what we know you will do. And until the day that you do it, may our suffering become a place of prayer. May our suffering draw us closer to you in the moments that we need you the most. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't think of a better way to transition into baptism. Today, we have the privilege of inviting Emery into the waters 
of baptism. You can still play if you want. Yeah, you don't, whatever. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> the beautiful thing about this is that little Emery is, is only just under two years old. She has a beautiful dress, doesn't she? You can all say, aw, just kind of soften her up a little bit. Yes. Yeah, she's ready to be Miss America right there. But you know, at two years old, she's quite innocent, isn't she? And that's why we need to invite her in to the promises of God and the way in which Jesus has given us from the very beginning, the way Paul did with Lydia and the household that came after her and the prison guard, all of these different people, it is through the waters of baptism. What we recognize for Emery is that as she goes into the water, she dies in the waters of baptism to be brought forth to new life in Jesus. And so we're going to mark her with the cross of Christ where the seed of faith is watered as she comes to an age where she can claim for herself Jesus as her Lord and be a disciple on a journey with him. And we recognize that it's a journey. We recognize that today is not the destination. It's just the beginning of this eternal life. And that Emery has been invited into not just the family of God here at St. John's, but this family here. And that you folks are going to be the greatest influence of faith for this little girl's life as she grows. And so I want you to introduce yourselves, and I'll give you the microphone. Share your name and your relationship to this precious, precious daughter of God. I'm Dan Nellison, and she is my niece. Lauren is my sister. I'm Lisa Nellison, and she's also my niece. I'm Lauren. I'm her mother. I'm Cameron. I'm her father. And you can hang on to that. At this time, we recognize that it takes a village to raise a child in the faith. And there are promises that you folks are making in, on in front of the congregation that's going to support and pray for you in those promises as you raise her in the promises that we are about to profess over the waters of baptism. So right now, those promises are going to come before you on the screen. You can take a look back there or up front. And would you profess these things if you believe them to be true out loud? All right, well, let's bring Emery over to the waters. If you want to lean her forward, you're going to get a little wet. <laughs> or back. There's not, enough, there's not enough to swim. But the Holy Spirit is in the water. I baptize you now in the name of our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There we go. I know it was a little cold. 
At different points in history, we would pinch the child to remind ourselves that the power of sin has been released. As she has been invited into the family of God, you are now a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And she says, I love that, but don't touch me. And so I'm going to do this part because I know she's going to like it a lot more. Emery, here's what this means. And you're going to learn this for the rest of your life. You see that? That's pretty cool. This reminds you that the light of God lives inside of you. That Jesus is inside of your heart. Can you do this? Can you show us your heart? Where's your heart? There's your heart. And he tells you, there she goes. Everybody say, aww. <laughs> yeah. And this light living in you, Jesus says that as you grow, you will let this light so shine before men that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And so we give that to you, even though she might want it. <laughs> we have a Bible for you here that you may begin to make good on those promises that you've just made before this assembly here. And we have a holy comforter that has been made by hand in prayer by our quilters to remind her and to remind you that God's Holy Spirit is always around her. You know what? If mom gave it to her, I think, I think maybe that would go better. And so it is our great privilege to have the opportunity to welcome into the Church of God its newest member, the daughter of Jesus, Emery Lobeck. Please praise God here with this family. And you may be seated. And you can blow out the candle too if you would like. <laughs> 